Hey, everybody! It is Yasser! I forgot my line. I'm just kidding. It's Isaiah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are from my brother Sneaker, and we've got a little announcement. We are teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you three exclusive uh, episodes. Uh, Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moment from a ton of podcasts and creates playlist clips from a bunch of shows. And you can just search and try them out and find anything that you love. For instance... Oh, yeah. There's a playlist on there uh, called Slice of Life, which is all about like crazy and incredible things that happen to everyday people. Like, I just learned this, bro. I just learned some people pay their bills on time, dog. Oh, is that a thing? Dog, people will have a bill due date, and they will pay that bill before then. That's crazy to me. Before then. You know what else is crazy? What? Spook also has a, a lot of fun, exclusive content from Feral Audio. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, like our tournament episodes are going to be, oh, like, yeah. you know, there's going to be stuff like Sleep With Me, a lot of our, our other great shows here at Feral. You don't want to miss it. Yep. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of my brother's sneakers exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash my brother's sneakers. Model boys, cute boys, round butt boys all day. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral. And buy some comfortable socks. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And uh, that music you hear there is lessblanks.com. Check that shit out. I think you'll like it. Uh, They're real good. Uh, Today's guest is Daniel Four, And he's an interesting fellow who uh, does ancestral medicine. Or as he says, uh, well, I don't want to say what he says because you're going to hear him say it in just a couple minutes. But uh, all right. Uh, Let's uh, get into the conversation with... Daniel Fool. But, but yes, you uh, you're a psychotherapist and you've uh, studied religions extensively. But and you do, as you said, uh, you work with dead people. <laughs> I I do kind of. I work with the spirits of. The people who have died. Uh, and it's one part of my overall practice. So, yeah, my professional background is with psychology. I'm a licensed therapist. I did a doctorate in psychology and and uh, have a background in religious studies. And my formal work and my focus is more in the realm of spiritual practice or uh, I guess you'd say religion, but a lot of people are averse to that. And the main orientation I have within that is what I would say earth honoring, indigenous, animist, 
spirituality. And the main foundation of that is that human beings, living humans, are just one kind of person and that we're in a really elaborate web of relationships with all these other kinds of beings, some of whom have physical bodies, some of whom don't, spirits of plants, animals, places, mountains, ancestors, elements, deities, all kinds of other things, right? And so for an indigenous person or for someone who's walking an animist or earth-honoring path, the main challenge is how do you live well with all those different kinds of relationships? How do you learn what they need uh, and, and how to show up well and what our place is in all of it? And so one really important kind of relationship that tends to get overlooked in this culture is with the ancestors, with our, and that can mean a lot of things. That can mean our blood ancestors. It can mean our family ancestors, which might not be blood ancestors, but they often are. It can mean ancestors who people who inspired you, but they're not related by family. Or it can mean your ancestors of tradition, like if you're Catholic, the saints. Uh, or the ancestors of the place where you live. Like I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so that includes Ohlone, Coast Miwok, Bay Miwok, Wapo, Patuan people, the different native peoples of this land here. And so, but it's the spirits of, of the of people who have been human more or less recently, and so they present in that way. They're they're humans that aren't in bodies right now. So is and it? So, well, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt, but is it in the sense of that, like the this. The energy of these beings are sort of meandering about as we sit in a Starbucks. Is that sort of? Uh, well, yeah, sure, uh, potentially. The, uh, the the basic assumption, the starting assumption, is that there's some kind of continuity of consciousness after death. If if that if you don't believe that, or if you're not necessarily on board with that, which a lot of people aren't, which is fine, then um, the whole concept of some soul or spirit or continuity of consciousness after you die is kind of like weird foo-foo new age stuff and so but for most people on earth which doesn't make it right it just means most people see it that way there is some kind of continuity of consciousness it's how i see it and therefore the question of what the hell after you die where do you know where do you go what happens and so in short it depends on how you lived and if you had a really screwed up, confused life, then after you die, you might have a hard time unless people do a ritual for you or look after you or make prayers for you, help you to transition. Do you, if you lived well, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, do you do those rituals? I do, yeah. And uh, and what's, uh, how to say, the from my perspective, the thing that, uh, let's say, mainstream Christianity gets wrong about its characterization of the afterlife is that it's a static thing, that it's a permanent forever kind of thing. Most in, most indigenous traditions are like, yeah, if you were wicked to people or had your heart totally closed your whole life, you might have a hell-like experience after you die because you're getting to experience those things that you went through from the other, the, the perspective of the person you were harming. And so it's... Um, you know, it might be tough for you, but that can shift. You can change after you die. It's a great opportunity. And people who are, have died, the spirits of people have died. When I say, say dead people, I'm not talking about the bodies. I'm talking about the spirits, right? And so the dead people, they uh, because you're not tethered to a body, you can change a lot quicker. And it's like water uh, when it's in liquid form instead of ice. You know, you can uh, the dead can change their state <clears throat> pretty quick, uh, which is nice. It, it means ritual work can be really effective. But 
to, to come back to your first question, what do I, you know, what do I do with people? One of the main things is to help people to get well with their family ancestors, with their blood ancestors. A lot of people have a really screwed up experience of family, or at least a medium disappointing screwed up experience. And so uh, what happens with that, sadly, is that we often throw out the possibility of support or loving connection with the older ancestors when we distance from our living family or from the recent ancestors whose lives were maybe they were a mess, you know. And so by, by helping people to be in relationship with the older ones, the ones who are really wise and loving and available, then they can start to re-pattern or heal their relationship with their living family. So, so I mean, sort of. It's uh, I'll use my ancestors, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, uh, on the Irish side. A lot of criminals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, my my grandfather was. Uh, he had he'd he'd murdered some people, and then there yeah. and there was uh, well, you know, just uh, you know, general re rebellious sorts, uh, and started the I. Some started helped start the IRA. That sort of type of thing right. like, how does that all how would that all translate into like their energy or their karma how does that come into how does that come into my life sure part of the uh w one way to start to, you're talking about your dad's dad's bloodline yes is that yeah, okay that's and dad. so one of the ways to think about it is to ask what if you take the a 2000 year lens so let's say over the last 2,000 years, what are the blessings and what are the burdens that come to you along that bloodline? What are the gifts and what are the things that are kind of toxic, right? And uh, so it might there might be an unhelpful, like, criminality or, like, total disregard for, like, a non-empathic disregard for others that creeps in. But it could also be a strong sense of justice and, like, this revolutionary resistance kind of spirit. And... For example, and and uh, breaking up stuck dogmatic perspectives, maybe in your work, in some way you're actually engaging in that, right? And and trying to like open people's minds to different things, and so th maybe that's part of a a gift and a uh, continuation of a kind of medicine or or energy or quality that comes from that bloodline, maybe. And it can also be something that happens in layers, you know, like if you have Irish ancestors, there's a point at which, and they've been in Ireland for a while, uh, and not, not one point, there's a lot of points at which the traditional culture of the land there gets beaten down yeah, by Romans, by the British, by waves of colonial imposition. Yeah, right? Ireland was uh, sort of a stopping ground before, uh, for for a lot of countries, they would stop at Ireland before before they would try to attempt to uh, invade England and right. the yeah, Irish the we, got, we got raped oh, yeah. a lot <laughs> like, yeah. that's yeah. why there's and, I mean that's oh. why we have red hair and dark Irish or the, the you know the Spaniards and the Moors uh, we really we must have been lookers though if people really wanted to rape us that much <laughs> Good, good. Hey, good point. The uh, the uh, but in you know, and I'll give an example from my own life. Uh, my uh, my dad's dad. He took his own life. He shot himself in the abdomen, right? And so his great grandfather died in the Civil War. Uh, seven. No, it was his. Okay, so his great grandfather died in the Civil War of dysentery. When I did visionary visioning directly with the older ancestors along the lineage, before I knew a lot of that about my recent ancestors, what I saw is an old 
ancestral guide in northern Europe being run through with a sword from the Romans in the belly. And so I'm like, okay. And I look at this history in my dad's dad's line of... I'm sorry, do you uh, mind if I just want to ask, when you say you saw, was it, can you... It, you know, indirect, like envisioning and kind of like waking dream, doing spirit work, uh, you say shamanic journey work, or uh, I, um, yeah, intuitively, it's sort of like doing, uh, visioning with the drum with eyes closed during ritual space. So traveling in spirit to be ask, asking to be shown about uh, things that happened. Yeah. And so it's a, like a direct uh, tuning in with the spirits there. And and so uh, so I'm given that piece of information and then the what I what I realized about it is the moment where my great 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 grandfather is is dying in a rebel prison camp in the moment my grandfather shooting himself in the abdomen in the moment that my old this old tribal northern european ancestor is being overrun by roman empire it's the same moment in time it's the same moment where i can either express what i'm feeling or uh cave in around it and so i, I look at like this pattern and it's an ancestral uh, burden that if i'm not conscious there's a risk that i'll recreate it that i'll play out that same story um so 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 it's tricky you know part of what what i say to people is either you have a conscious or an unconscious relationship with your ancestors either way is okay but if you have an unconscious relationship like you're you're the altar you're the thing that you're the uh, way in which all those stories get played out for better or for worse it's 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 interesting because it a lot of this, and there's a, there is a question I want to ask, but a lot of this, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, book The Black Veil by Rick Moody, or uh, Rick. I'm not. Rick Moody's a novelist. He wrote like a, they made a film out of uh, the Ice Storm, uh, maybe like 15 years ago. But he wrote a semi sort of like memoir type thing where he researched. He wanted to know how much of his behavior and and like strangeness or whatever for lack of a better word uh was sort of a genetic or like a historic thing with his family and he went and researched the moody's uh for like generation like any moody and there's a, there was also a lot of moody people with the last name moody in literature and and some were actually based on ancestors of his and it, it which is it's kind of in a weird way it's a lot of what you're talking about and i think he just did this as a sort of a self experiment i just it keeps popping in my head cuz he even like there was a minister ancestor of his who was known to like walk around with a black veil on his face so rick moody spent like a month <laughs> like living in new york with a black veil <laughs> to see what it, to see what it invoked with him his psychology it was kind of interesting here, yeah here another take on it uh Almost all traditional cultures, if you look at how they handle death, they have some kind of ritual to make sure the spirit of the person who died becomes an ancestor rather than a ghost. Now, when I say ancestor, I mean they've joined the other loving and well ancestors. They understand they're dead. They're in a good space. They're, they wish well for the living. As opposed to a ghost who tends to be relatively isolated, hasn't really transitioned, hasn't made it out of the gravitational field of this dimension, didn't go through that whole, I'm going into the light kind of thing after death. <laughs> and, and so they're like, okay, I'm dead now, and people can't see me. This sucks. And so uh, it, when I ask others in my own sense, if I had to estimate in the United States, because we don't do those rituals for the most part, to mm -hmm. make sure 
kind of don't have a lot of. I mean, Western America, our culture doesn't have like coming of age rituals. Uh, yeah, no doubt. And binge so, drinking. And so, <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. So so dying is a big rite of passage, and it begins uh, becoming an ancestor is a rite of passage. You say, and that rite of passage begins with death. And it doesn't complete until you've become an ancestor. And so ghosts are, they're kind of like people who haven't finished dying yet. They haven't finished the rite of passage that at the end of it would arrive them at the realm of the ancestors. And so if we say, so, so what's actually going on? I would guess in the United States uh, that maybe two-thirds of the people who die within a year make their way to the realm of the ancestors or to that state to be joined with the loving dead. Most people sort it out, but there's a lot of people who live a screwed up life or they don't have support from others. And so they're kind of like, eh, you know, they're kind of hanging around. And, and, uh, and so of those, uh, I think there's, I think there's maybe three and a half million people that die a year. So let's say there's 800,000 ghosts, new ghosts born a year. So let's say a quarter of those are really troubled people, really troubled spirits, potentially a cause of illness, disruption, and problems among the living. So that's 200,000 new troubled ghosts a year in the United States. So are they sometimes in Starbucks? Yeah, probably. <laughs> if, if they have bad karma, yeah, they certainly are. Well, if you're, I mean, imagine in a compassionate way, imagine you're a ghost. You don't have a body. You're, you're in the state of perpetual kind of hunger, right? Or it's just like, what is going on? So humans are bright. The living are bright. So the dead will tend to attach themselves to living energies. You, you see in the movies, it's like, oh, it got cold in the room. There's a ghost. Well, yeah, they're sucking the energy out of the room. That's kind of the implication there because it's a thermal shift because they're depleted as an energy. And so the... Uh, so ghosts tend to attach to people, and especially people who are unconscious or who are in an addictive process or have mental illness or, you know, who don't know any different. So, When you say, like, two-thirds, like, how do, how do you sort of come to that number? Well, it's basically just the last 15 years of doing ritual work with people. Uh, and looking around and talking to other people I know who do this work. And the kind of the question is, like, what percentage of people tend to transition okay? And if, you know, if we did rituals around death where we're actually like, man, I hope Matt really joins the ancestors and feels good. Like, let's tune in to see how he's doing. Let's see what he needs. If we actually like directly connected, it'd be like three quarters, you know, nine out of 10. Like it would reduce the amount of ghosts because you're actually tuning in and taking care of it. That happens in traditional cultures, so they don't get a lot of ghosts. But, um, you know, people, the, the prayers that are made from people of whatever faith are just spontaneous prayers, and the tears that are shed that basically have the message of, hey, your life mattered. We miss you. We love you. That sucked that you died. We miss you. You know, that, that helps. That helps the dead to its momentum for them to actually let go of this world when they know that their life mattered. It's it's uh, there's another thing I keep thinking of because you, when you're talking about death rituals and stuff and I don't know uh, there uh, the, there's that documentary about George Harrison and there's two really interesting moments about death in that documentary. One is that he's upset when John Lennon got shot because Lennon didn't have time to 
prepare for death, which I thought was an, and then also, and then uh-huh. there was the moment when uh, George Harrison's house got broken into and he got stabbed. Mm-hmm. And I, his wife asked him if he was afraid, and he was like, uh, "I was just worried I wouldn't be able to prepare for death." <laughs> and I mean, that's a, uh-huh. it. It really was a. It was profound and affected me because then, and of course, you know, I think like any of us, we start thinking of our own death and what. And I'm curious, like, if you have any sort of insight into because I, 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 uh, I know he was a Krishna, and my knowledge of Krishna is uh, pretty minimal. But I was just wondering if you have any sort of insight on what he was speaking to. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know what he was speaking to necessarily. Although or I know that with what you in, do. In a, yeah, no, exactly. I know in a lot of Buddhist and Hindu practice, I've done more Buddhist meditation retreat, and in at least in Zen practice, meditation and just Zen practice in general is seen as a preparation for death. It's like, yeah, we might not complete this call. <laughs> True. And, and, and and that's okay. I mean, you'll hear you'll hear the llamas sometimes. They'll they'll say that kind of shit when they're just talking, and they're like, "Oh, I might not finish my tea." And and they, you know, you can tell that they're not phased by it. It's like we already, I already have faced that. And and so for me, the, my orientation, I I mean, I don't know what's going to happen when I die necessarily. I have some just base assumptions, but I'm going to, I trust I'll just wing it. And the, 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 the best, the best preparation is to work it out with people in your life, have your life in order, try to be a happy person and to generally be useful and beneficial and loving. You know, if you're a good person, that's the main deal to prepare for death. But, you know, beyond that, there's a, there's an ideal, a human ideal in Mahayana Buddhism which is totally awesome and inspiring. And it's a bodhisattva ideal or the bodhisattva ethic. And, and it basically is a, is a vow of non-abandonment uh, toward others that stretches over many lifetimes. And so the, the spirit of that vow is, I, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back. I like it here. My, my vote is to come back to here, to earth. But I, I'm not going to leave or stop taking birth until everyone everywhere is is happy and well and that they have what they need. And and so I'm not, there's a, a spirit of, non, of non-abandonment. So when I die, I'm going to come back. So I don't want to die because I don't want to have to learn how to tie my shoes again and go through all that and high school and everything. So I'm just getting warmed up. And so, but if I die, I'll be like, oh, okay. And, uh, and then come back because as long as there's need, then I'll keep showing up. That's uh, you know, I've never heard that because I myself meditate, and I, I've never heard uh, the that the, uh, uh, preparing that that is in some way preparing for death. That's very kind well. Of, part, one of the ways that it prepares us for death is it, it says, "I'm not just my body, and I'm not just Daniel or Matt. I'm not just my identity. That what I am, also in addition to that, is there's some thread of." ancient continuity and and from that place i say that i'm not running away I'm not running away from the suffering in the world i'm not going to do it and so I, I i make intent to come back however is needed just you know tell me what tell me what's needed i'm i'm on board and so from a perspective of awake awakening the bodhisattva vow it, it looks as obvious as like the right hand will not abandon the left it's like well well Duh, but but <laughs> but uh, you have to e- either intellectually or through direct experience get to the point where you realize there's no individual enlightenment b- 
before you're like, well, I guess I have to help out everything everywhere in order to actually wake up. And then you're back at a relational stance. Then you're, you know, then you're just saying, okay, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I'm not in the mood to die today, but if it happens, okay. Yeah. Now, uh, I guess I'm curious, it's like, because do you also do traditional psychotherapy or is this all very, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I meant like, does, does some guy <laughs> it's come a, in it's and it's like. It's a fine question. I, uh, I, I don't actively currently do that, but I do, um, I have done it. I did my 3,000 hours of clinical work in order to be a licensed marriage and family therapist. And so I'm, I'm a licensed therapist, um, but I do more spiritual mentorship and counseling and healing work right now, just cause I, I like psychotherapy. I love the spirit work. And so if I can do the spirit work, then I will. And, uh, and, uh, I, yeah, I do trainings for clinicians sometimes on how to incorporate, uh, indigenous or earth honoring awareness into their clinical practice, which is useful. And, um, uh, and yeah, and I love it. So I have actually have a lot of respect for the whole field and world of psychotherapy. I just don't actively work right now as a therapist per se. Because it is, it's on one hand, it's science, and then on the other, it's spiritual. And I would assume that on a, a lot of scientists might criticize these. The, oh, there's the, a there's a. Um, the reductionistic scientism and literalism that in such a profoundly boring way pervades a lot of Western culture is also present in psychology and psychotherapy. But psychotherapy is a therapy for the psyche, the psyche, the soul, like the human whole being, right? And so the American Psychological Association has made it very explicit that if you're working with Native Americans, it's good cultural practice to consult with the medicine person. But what they don't say, and, and that they should go on to say, is that not everyone who believes in spirits or more than just humans is necessarily a brown person. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, I, I love Native folks. You know, I have Native friends. Like, it's cool, but I'm not Native, and I'm not pretending to be. And I also, you know, participate in Sweat Lodge, and I also talk to the ancestors, and so do people from Africa and Asia and every other place. And so the point is that uh, a culturally competent mental health professional will at the very least be sensitive to the worldview of the client and to know that it's not their place to get the client to adopt some weird reductionistic worldview. And some therapists are also shamanic healers, spirit worker people. I mean, that's what I did my doctoral research on is the use of shamanic healing methods in a clinical mental health space. And so there are people who are psychologists, counselors who are openly saying, yeah, I'll help you talk to the spirits if you want. We can do that in session. No worries. You can even bill for it. So, is, no, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I thought oh, no, go ahead. Oh, That's I was it. just curious, like, if I come in, what goes on in a, a session? Because I know you do personalized sessions I saw on your site. Like, and I'm curious what... What is the, that process like? Do we discuss like uh, yeah. I've been depressed, and then maybe it's this, and then uh, what, it, what it's it, it's almost always driven by what you or another person would be bringing to the session. But if the work, you know, let's say you're you you weren't really suffering with any particular thing, but you're just like, I think I like what you're having. What are you having? Can you explain that to me a little bit? Can I do some of that? 
then the basic thing I would fall back on is you think above, below, and center, right? And so below is our relationship with the earth, with land, with the elements, with our body, with the ground where we're at. And so getting really in your body and making sure you're in good relationship with the land where you're at. You feel connected to the earth. You feel like a sense of place. And there's a lot of different kinds of earth-honoring rituals that can go along with that. And then the sky or the heavens, the stars, the question there on an inner level is, what am I doing here? What's my destiny? What's my path? What's my calling on a soul level? And how do I try to line my life up with that? Even if my day job isn't lined up with it, that's not necessarily the point. You just want to get to a place where you're being real with yourself about what your calling is and trying to live that. And then that's also the kind of the connection with the transcendent, with God, goddess, spirit directly, learning how to pray in whatever, you know, tradition works for you. And then between the middle, the the child of heaven and earth is human consciousness and, and learning how to be a well-adjusted human being. And that on a spirit level, that corresponds to ancestor work and making sure that you're not playing out unresolved stuff from your family and that you are at relative peace with them and with your ancestors and that you play well with others, you know? So that can be used as a diagnostic. It's like, are you really well adjusted with the humans and pretty grounded, but you're kind of confused about what you're doing here? Or maybe you're clear about what you're doing here, but you're just emotionally a wreck and don't know how to leave your apartment. And then to work on that, you you know. Because my friends accused me of not leaving my apartment a lot. (laughs) That's why. (laughs) It just, you struck a chord, sir. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You you can do a ritual from the safety of your apartment. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so you can, that's one way to think about just a a shorthand map for where where the journey goes. Because at the end of that, it's like you're grounded, you, you know where you're at, you're in a good way with your people and you're living your destiny. If somebody's doing that, they probably don't need to pay me for much. Uh, so, um, so yeah, that's what I then do in the individual work. And then I, I do a lot of community trainings and rituals, stuff like that. So, so is it in essence, and I guess maybe I'm asking this sort of for myself, but like I have, uh, there's portions of, I come from a large, uh, you know, working class Chicago, Irish, Catholic family, so uh-huh. it's need. I don't need to say that there's there's been some brawls at the holiday dinners, <laughs> uh-huh. but it's and there are certain elements of my family that I do not relate to, uh, right? And there's of course I have some siblings and whatnot that I really relate to, and I would say over the past years I've definitely distanced myself from uh, some of them, uh, mostly because of anger or whatever but would you are you saying that that's i, I mean they're they're pers- they're angry or they're let's be frank racist I, it, <laughs> and it's hard yeah, for it, me to be around i don't want to i don't but would it be best for me to try to resolve this and find no, love with no it, 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 well it's a great question i'm glad you asked it because a lot of people mistakenly assume that if they work with their ancestors if they do healing work with their family it means they're going to have to let go of healthy boundaries that they invested a lot of energy putting into place. And so it doesn't mean that like doing, getting in a clear and aligned and good way with your family might actually mean having more boundaries with them. 
and so <laughs> some people, some mile. people, <laughs> right? Some people need more boundaries, right? And so they, uh, uh, it's hard to it's hard to know. But what you, what anyone can do, what you could do, for example, is you could totally get to know in direct and intimate way your recent and more distant blood ancestors on both your mother's and father's side of the family and any in the spirits of any grandparents that have passed make sure if they're not already really bright and well in spirit do do things ritually to make sure that they are and then just feel totally backed by your ancestors your family ancestors and they, they'd probably be like yeah we know you're you know the, our children are racist sorry you know like <laughs> But we love you, you know, and so the, the so often when people do the work and their living family is, you know, in some version kind of a mess or hard to be around, the the person who does the work and the ancestors are close, and what they come to see is that the living family is actually the one that's more disconnected. And so, but, you know, you hold a prayer for them. You can love them from afar and wish them well, and, and in a sense, you turn them over to the ancestors. Say you know, so may may the ancestors take care of the family, so I don't have to worry about my parents in the same way. You know, you might show up for them, but and so you don't have to hold that in your in your body or in your vibration. If you if you're worried about your family all the time, it's not good for your health. And so no, no. <laughs> but now is when you do this work, is there for uh, perhaps I'm using this word out of ignorance or. Uh, is it, is there like psychic work going on? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I yeah, I'm I'm like I'm I, I'm not a psychic like by trade. I'm uh, an, an average or maybe a little bit above average intuitive person who's worked at it a lot. And if pressed, I can do ancestor work for others, and I have done that. And my preference is to step other people through a process of doing the work themselves. So I, I maybe I'm lazy about it, but I think it's more empowering, and uh, it and I'd rather teach people, even though it takes a little longer, how to do it. Now, if somebody's in a pinch and they come to me and they're like, "I'm dying," like I don't give a shit about shamanic work. I don't want to know how to do it. I just know that I'm really sick and you know help. And so I'd be like, "Okay, well let me let me shake rattles at it and let's do it. You know, let's take care of it." And so they don't in in that situation, which I don't encounter that often. They don't need to learn how to do the work. That would be uh, cruel to force them to learn how to do it. But most of the time, uh, I spend with others around it is teaching them how to do the work themselves. Because uh, anybody, anybody can, and according to some people, should relate consciously with their ancestors. And so it's it's a human, it's a basic human capacity. But yeah, you know, also intuitive stuff. Stuff comes through in dreams. You know, I get dreams about stuff, and if I tune in about something, I can usually see what's going on or do divination on it and figure out what's going on. If yeah, if a person is dying and they come to you, how? I mean, you help prepare them for death. Is that correct too? Is that yeah, the- yeah. I mean, assuming they're actually dying, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they uh, usually people just feel like they're dying, but sometimes they're actually dying. And uh, and so if somebody's actually dying, uh, there's all the regular appropriate human psychological things to help people to review their life and to really, you know, make amends where they can and all that stuff. But another piece that will often get overlooked is you want to make sure that there's 
the ancestors on the other side there to receive them. You know, when I was sitting with my grandma and she was dying, I was really clear because I'd done the work around it that her parents were both there and they're just like, yeah, we're good. We got her. Whenever she's ready, we're cool. And so you want to have somebody waiting for you at the station. Otherwise, it's just you just go into the light and then you're just in the light and it's like, whoa, it's lonely in the light. What's going on here? And so I do one one thing allies of the dying can do, whether or not they know how, I mean, you can wing it, is to call in the loving, helpful ancestors of the person who is dying so that they're there to receive that person when they do cross. Yeah. Well, how does, because I know you grew up in Ohio, is that right? It's true, yeah. And uh, was your was the, your family background like your parents and stuff? Were they open, like open to this sort no, of thing? Or was the, this... No, not at all. They weren't <laughs> they weren't actively closed to it or anything. They've been just kind of neutral and supportive about all of it. But no, I just you know I started listening to the Doors and then I ate a lot of drugs in high school and I. Uh, <laughs> Started reading about shamanism in high school and paganism and ritual and every other thing. And by the time I went to uh, college and started eating less drugs, the uh, I was already kind of working with my first teachers in shamanic practice or paganism at age 17. And so I've been I've been really blessed to be uh, following that trail of breadcrumbs for uh, you know 15 years, whatever it is. I'm 35 now, so. But yeah, it's been a journey. I spent some time as a practicing Muslim in North Africa. Wow, that's and, really. What brought you to Africa? I mean, to study Islam. Yeah, I was I was there in a Fulbright scholarship, and I was part of a Sufi order and was practicing Muslim at the time. At the time, praying, you know, praying heads to butts in the mosques and I wonder if being in it. I was just going to ask. I wonder if the FBI has a. Uh... <laughs> Has a file on you. They don't seem too Muslim happy. These I don't. Days. I uh, yeah. I don't. Uh, I I don't think I'd be that interesting to them, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, talks to dead people. No one's gonna take them seriously. No, no worries. <laughs> so. uh, did you? And you were you went to Egypt. You went to a lot of different like. I did. Yeah, I lived in Cairo and I lived in uh, Fez, Morocco, briefly. And was that all yeah. sort of on the spiritual journey? Yeah, it absolutely was. I was kind of annoying at the time. Uh, I, I just had the young, you know, like mid twenties convert arrogance of having found the truth, and uh, I, you know, I didn't lose too many friends, fortunately. But uh, the uh, once I realized my Sufi teacher that I was working with was a, a mess, I, and I just went through a whole humbling disillusionment process, and composted my Muslim identity. So unlike most people who are either Muslim or not Muslim, I was Muslim for a while. And uh, and so then I got into Buddhist practice and got back into shamanism and earth honoring spirituality. And that's what that's what makes the most sense to what? me. I mean, we're, we're, we're totally, totally in crisis on the planet ecologically. And so any type of spirituality that doesn't have a genuine, like foreground relevant response to that, I think is outdated what how did these transitions happen like what was the transla- transition from being a muslim into a buddhist and then to yeah it was it's always interesting to me because it was I it was you know I, I i was fortunate i had psychological skills and so there's a technique called voice dialogue from helen sidra stone and i remember having someone else hold the space to dialogue with my inner muslim and uh 
and and I was it was kind of like letting him know he's about to be axed or fired, <laughs> and uh, and but he got that because it's me, but it's also not only me, and so. There was a, uh, you know, insects, when they molt, they'll sometimes eat their uh, molt because that has a lot of protein in it. And so there was a sense of, like, shedding and eating the shed, maybe, and, and like, reincorporating a lot of uh, what I had learned over, you know, it is a process over time. But I learned how to pray as a Muslim, and it was great. And I also learned about discipline because you're praying five times a day. It's hard to get too to get God too far out of your awareness, and so Islam is awesome about discipline. It's awesome about uh, simplicity and clarity of practice, you know. But and having been, because this is something I've actually been wanting to get, uh, like a a Muslim rights person on the show. But I think there's a lot of, I mean, what are the misconceptions about Islam, and and could because I mean, there's millions and millions of them and it's i I think they've been seriously vilified obviously well yeah uh if you can if you can find someone from the uh uh the what's it called the republican brothers uh from the sudanese movement uh it's one of the only here's here's a challenge with islam uh for me i couldn't like islam has a hell of a time squaring sharia or islamic law with human rights and for me, if it's not in alignment with human rights, uh, I think it's dated and needs to get on board with global consciousness shift. And so the question in Islam is to what degree can you, can, can you reinterpret um, what's happening in the Quran? And that, that process is called ijtihad, and it's the same root word as jihad, which just means to struggle, right? And so very, very few Muslims believe that that process of interpretation of the Quran, of ijtihad, is still ongoing. The, the the party line across the board is that there's not a lot of new interpretation needed. And so Islam in that way, uh, religiously, becomes kind of frozen in time around the 13th century. And so anyone who suggests that Islam is, that, that uh, it could be in keeping with the spirit of the tradition to reinterpret some of the application of it in modern times, those people tend to disappear uh, or be shunned, if not disappear quietly in the night. And so, uh, I mean, there are, there are progressive people who support human rights who happen to be Muslim. And that's, there are many people like that, but there aren't that many of them that have an elaborate Islamic religious rationale for human rights and why Islam says human rights are important. That's very interesting, and uh, I. Oh. Um, Go ahead. Oh, I was just uh, also very interested because I don't think we we talked much about the uh, the Earth Medicine Alliance, which is something else I want. And because you did yeah, mention yeah. like how we are in an ego crisis in this country, and it's and it does seem like what you were saying for me personally, like I've explored Buddhism for the last year, and up until very recently, I was. Very much a fucking give me a diner and a bar and a street and it like and then the more I've become sort of a spiritual person the the more I have a very strong desire to be in nature which is completely yeah. amazing to me it's it's very yeah. and uh, 
Uh, yeah, and I, I'm so I just interested in what what y'all do over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the the main just to speak, the Buddhism's awesome in general. The Dharma's awesome. Period. I'm a big fan and, of the Dalai. Just like what you were saying about like uh, keeping in with modern times. The Dalai Lama is uh, he's he's really good at that, and I just uh, no, he's great. He's like a smart, modern, loving, funny dude. And <laughs> and the uh, uh, the the one of the main things with American Buddhism is that it sometimes becomes not always sometimes becomes so intellectually oriented. And so internal mind oriented that it loses the earth honoring roots that it has in old school China or in Japan or in Southeast Asia. And so there is actually more of an animist, more of a shamanic or earth honoring sensibility to Buddhism in its traditional Asian context. And some of the translations of Buddhism into the West just lose that piece. Like it's a, almost like that's just a cultural piece. It's not part of the Dharma. Well, it is. It is actually part of the Dharma. But anyways, without going into all that, because I'm not a Buddhist teacher, I just have strong opinions about it. And the uh, the Earth Medicine Alliance is a non-profit that I founded in 2009 when I felt I had too much free time on my hands, I guess. But it, uh, I, I joke about that because anyone who's founded a non-profit knows that they're, uh, they require a lot of care. And the intent of our organization is to help people to reconnect with the earth in a like living dynamic way and to learn how to nourish, how to tend to our relationships with the others, the others who aren't living humans. And so our constituents in that way aren't just people, aren't just human people. They're also tree people, stone people, mountains, the moon, you know, so the, the rest of nature, we have an unbreakable uh, bond with the rest of just reality, the whole concept of nature is a totally Western thing. It implies that it's like humans and nature as if they're split. And so, but, but you know, these, the, the point being these other kinds of relationships, they require care and tending. And so that's the, the organization uh, hosts, uh, or we put on conferences with different earth honoring indigenous teachers, elders, leaders. We also have a free interview project and archive called Voices of the Earth. And all that's at our website. It's earthmedicine.org. And, uh, and just my own practice as well. It's ancestralmedicine.org for what it's worth. But the um, the core thing, the core motivation for me in founding that organization, if I get to launch just one arrow into the kind of matrix of Western modern industrial culture, it's 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 at this place in us. And it just happens, it happens quickly and unconsciously because we're so in it, where we objectify every single other kind of person that's not a living human person. And when we do that, we're totally justified in relating with all those other people as objects. It's the absolute core process that happens in racism. You're like, black people aren't totally people, therefore relate with them in objectifying ways. Or whoever is not totally people, therefore X, right? So that same process, we've made a lot of growth in terms of, at least in theory, relating with other humans in a better way, you know, ongoing, right? That's a you know, big piece of work, ongoing. And in the meantime, we continue often unconsciously to see these other kinds of beings that aren't human as objects. And it sucks. It's painful. It hurts us on some soul level to do that. And, and it's driving... Um, 
the biggest hemorrhaging of biological diversity on the planet in millions of years. You know, it's a, what you said re really stood out and was profound to me that it's a Western concept of man and nature and not that we're all one or involved. <laughs> and, you know, it's even like uh, Carl Sagan it says at the beginning of the Cosmos series of we're all made of star stuff. And we, we are. This is our conversation is mediated through the metal in the wires and the satellites and the fire that's generated from the electricity, from the coal and natural gas that's pulled out of the earth. And even on an internal level, my ability to make speech as a function of the play of electrical energy through the liquid and bone sub, you know, base of my physical body and the breath that's moving the sound. And so all that is, it, this is the earth talking. It's earth listening. <laughs> I'm not laughing yeah. at, at you. I, I, it's just, it's, we don't think this way, and it's... I, yeah, I know. It, it makes a big problem. <laughs> Imagine if on the debate the other night, Obama's like, hey, I'm the earth. Re-elect me, you know. I mean, obviously, not good political strategy, but no, but no. actually, this is it's basic stuff, you know, for people who are raised with it. Indigenous culture is learned. It's not innate. It's learned. It's interesting that... Western culture is, I would say, is responsible for where we are in this shit fire. <laughs> yeah, all the people who, how to say, um, God, I don't want to be too politically incorrect. I was going to say all the not white people that I know definitely have that view, and many of the white people. Well, and and, yeah, and like guns, germs, and steel. It's like it it. It, are you aware of that book slash? It's a, yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't know too well, but yeah. But I it's interesting. I mean, it analyzes why is there certain cultures that are, you know, we, we all started off the same, and how did certain people cultures progress and all this? And it's that very. But it's, it's interesting because you know it's a lot of the greedy Europeans, you know, coming here or in South America, and a lot of cultures that had no concept of ownership and just like being like. We're going to fucking kill you. <laughs> and it's, right. And it's, well, and uh, this is what we do when we're not in touch with our own pain. We hurt others in order to try to reconnect with our own pain because we're so out of touch with it. And so there's a point in each of our bloodlines as American white guys where our ancestors got uh, something snapped. It might have snapped really dramatically by having the men humiliated while Charlemagne came in and tore down the sacred sites of the Northern European people and, wa and made the men watch while he did it. Or it might have snapped really uh, quietly over a, over a couple generations in the 900s or whatever. But it, it, every, along every bloodline, the tribal indigenous earth-honoring sensibilities of our blood ancestors, uh, were, there was a fragmentation that occurred. And we're still we're playing that out unconsciously. Generally, I'm I'm generalizing, but um, it's uh, this is striking to me. I heard it uh, conveyed well about the choice that indigenous people, generally speaking, face when confronted with waves and waves of colonizers. So one, you can run away, which only works for so long, but may you know increase your lifespan. You can fight back, which is totally psychologically satisfying, but not necessarily 
effective or wise for continuity of your community, you can assimilate, which might increase your lifespan, might not, might work out in the long term, and which, you know, a lot of people choose for survival. It's like you bury the seeds and you hope for the conditions to have them germinate again. Or, and it's not either or, but the last one is what's striking is you can recognize that the only way out of it is to try to heal the sickness in the mind of the colonizer. And so you basically see like, wow, that's the, that's the only way out of it. It's, it made me kind of wonder if could a continent or even like a country have karma because oh, absolutely oh yeah because we got yeah. some fucking bad karma coming at us. Well, no <laughs> yes. we do i mean we're in a position to do a lot of good too i mean there's i'm actually kind of patriotic in a weird way but but there's a you know the the two generally speaking the two big unaddressed harms in the history of our country is the genocide of native people and then the uh, slavery and so i think there's been some progress and and you know it's not my place to really assess that but you know things better than 100 years ago and and there's a ton of healing that if the leadership and if you know if we were to make it really proactive could be so awesome but it's not happening that much so yeah, no, there's a lot of fan. There's a lot of, a lot of that. So, I mean, what do you do? Just kind of roll with it. Try to know your place and be helpful. So, yeah. one of the, one of the things I want to make sure I, I I speak to is the importance of place with the with the earth honoring ritual in general, with my own practice and with the Earth Medicine Alliance for Indigenous people. Indigenous means of a place. And we all have indigenous ancestors, whether or not we're indigenous people now. But one of the things that has been lost a lot historically is the, is a real sense of intimacy and connection with where we're at. And that's one of the things that can be relearned and reactivated or reclaimed. Whether or not you're even into spirituality or talking to dead people or whatever, just to to love the Hudson River or Manhattan or the land there, whatever it is, or where, wherever you're at to fall in love with that place and to get to know it and to get to know that that's, that's the scale on the dragon's back where you're, you're calling home. It's yeah. interesting because I living in Los Angeles and having, I'd lived in several other cities and there is a, in a lot of cities, uh, you know, you're out on the street and you're, you're really active and in that city where in Los Angeles, it's a very disconnected place and you know people are right. in their cars and they never they're and it's just it's amazing because i think there and there is a certain type of people here a lot of times that are seem a little disconnected or it maybe i'm nuts but it seems like there's a you know a, a little bit more frenetic energy about individuals here sometimes or or sort of a spiral oh, yeah. I mean, or something, and I'm, that's just uh, an interesting point because it's like I don't know how connected or grounded people are to their where well, they are. My my ministry, if you will, is in Silicon Valley. I've lived in Silicon Valley for the last ten years, and there's a lot of lonely people here, and there's a lot of people who uh, are not even sure why they're doing what they're doing. You know, I mean, there's a lot of awesome people too, but there's a lot of quiet suffering, and 
And in the meantime, there is the land here is so alive and so available for relationship and beautiful. You know, the, the Bay Area, 250 years ago, there was about 20,000 people here before Spanish arrival in the 1770s. Now there's about 8 million people. And I'll tell you, it's my impression that the, the spirits of the land get less love and care and attention now than they did 250 years ago. There's 400 times more people, but there's less connecting. It's happening, and many people do, but there's, there's not a whole bunch of just tuning in and just loving and savoring the spirits of the oaks or the salmon or the mountain lions or the butterflies or hummingbirds, whoever, you know. So the, the, the rest of life is just waiting for us to get out of our little narcissistic bubble and to come back. I mean, it's, it's tough because part of the message once we come back into the relationship is like, what the hell are you doing? Guys, ease up on us, would you? You know, hello. And so, so there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of loss that's happening. So emotionally, if, you, if you, your heart's not open, you can, it can be overwhelming. But, but there's also a lot of sweetness and joy. And when you're in relationship, you're, you're, it's reality-based. You're not in, your, in the mental thought bubble. You're actually in connection. Whether or not you live urban or in the middle of nowhere, it doesn't matter. You can be deeply connected in the middle of a totally urban setting. Yeah. So. That's, uh, well, uh, is there anything uh, sort of in closing you would like to say? Or, and definitely uh, uh, I would like to have the websites again. And uh, you, I know this is a silly question, but are you by chance on Twitter? <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm on Facebook, but not on Twitter. And uh, I do distance work, so I do phone sessions with people. And my, the website for my practice is Ancestral Medicine, like T-R-A-L, AncestralMedicine.org. And then for the nonprofit, the website is EarthMedicine.org. And all the info is there uh, about what I'm up to. But, you know, the, the thing that occurs to me in, in closing is that the stuff we're talking about, about relating with the ancestors, relating with the earth, remembering your destiny, your purpose, living that, all that kind of stuff. It's not about religion. It's not about spirituality even, really. A lot of Native people talk about it as uh, it's just ways of life. And so it's um, what I'm available to help others reclaim is a relational way of life that includes but is not limited to other living human beings. And it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental human thing. And however people arrive at that, it's going to be a better world when we do, when more people do, because then as soon as we do that, it's, it's implied that we're ethically and morally obligated to relate well with these other beings. Once we come back into relationship with them, you, you know, you don't want to relate badly with the earth when it's, when they're friends, they're relatives. So, so that's the point in, in a nutshell. And yeah, I, you know, I really I appreciate the conversation and you reaching out. And I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I honestly I I didn't know what to expect, which is a great way to go about it anyway. But and I I really enjoyed this, and it was I thank you very much. It was a, it was really great, and I really enjoyed, and I feel like I've uh, learned a lot of things, and I'm a better person now. So thank you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Thanks, man. 
very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you like the show, please donate to it. You can uh, go to the uh, feralaudio.com there and donate to our show. And you can, um, if you can't afford to do a donation, you can buy some stuff through Amazons. The Amazons.com. Also, November 13th, uh, Josh Androwski and I are doing a show at the uh, little theater, small little theater. There's a, we're doing a fundraiser for uh, the two people uh, I discussed on last week's episode, um, political prisoners who uh, didn't weren't allowed to plead the fifth because they were in a grand jury, which is really fucked because the FBI uses it as a means of intimidation, yada, 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 yada. But you should come to that November 13th, $10, tickets at the door. Um, it's going to be a really great time. And uh, Matt Bronger, Laura Keitlinger, Will Weldon, John Vargas... DC Pearson. It's going to be a really groovy, awesome show, so come to that. And uh, if you want to email me, you can reach me at conversationswithdwyer at gmail. Also, check out my Tumblr, Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Hopefully, uh, they'll have some episodes up there, stuff written up there by the time I get there. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening, and uh, give a big shout-out. Thanks there to the psychic world. Send your positive vibes to Dustin Marshall, who helps put this all together. Uh... Power to the people. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.